Our Bible reading this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and we're reading verses 11 through to 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility." He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning everyone, how are we this morning? Today's passage is chock-a-block, it is full, it is awesome, and we're going to get pressed into it. But first, I want you to put up your hand if you think that first impressions matter. Wondering what your first impressions of me right now are. No judgment in this place. First impressions matter. I agree with the majority of you, I think, put your hands up. I agree, first impressions do matter. And I've actually realised lately how much first impressions form my understanding of people. I just started at Bible college earlier this year, and in the 12 weeks or so that I've been there, I've met so many people. And maybe you can remember a time where you've gone into a foreign place where there's a bunch of people. I remember sitting in class, and that one person puts their hand up and is always answering the questions. That's the loud person. That's the extrovert in the group. And then you look over in the corner, and there's a quiet person who's not saying much. They either don't have much to say, or they're just timid, or they're the introvert of the group if you want to label them by personalities. Or you listen to your teacher go on like the 50th tangent in one one class and you're like, oh, we've got one of those teachers. <laughs> First impressions do matter. And I was actually really interested by the question of how do we understand people? And lots of social psychologists have looked into this question, and first impressions are part of it. First impressions, what we do is we take our understanding of people, which includes impressions, and then we put people into categories, just like I did for the people who were speaking and not speaking and teachers going on tangents. We do this in our life every single day. We put people into groups based on similarities. Now, if you're not resonating with me yet, think back to high school days or the schoolyard. 
when you've got the different groups around the playground. You've got one group, the popular group. What do they have in common? They're popular. You know, you've got the group that are the musical people. What have they got in common? They're musical. You've got the drama group. You've got the, the nerds and the gamers. You've got the scooterers. Or you've got the people who are stuck on their phone in my day or listening to music. You know, people are grouped off based on similarities. And, and the thing is, similarities aren't inherently bad. Groups aren't inherently bad, but they do lead down a dangerous path. And you can see throughout all of history, when people have built up boundaries, borders, it's slowly built and built and built, so then there's barriers. And then it becomes a mentality of this is us and this is them. It becomes exclusion. And this gets dangerous when people then think we are different to one another. And if the the question of worth comes into it, we are worth more than them, that's when it gets really dangerous because this is precursors into horrific things throughout history, atrocities such as the genocides of the Holocaust of Rwanda, where people are vilified based on their background. It's what leads to things like the Christchurch massacre or the bombings over Easter, when people set up boundaries and then create this distinction of worth, us and them. In today's passage, Paul is addressing a really important theme just running throughout, and that theme is one of alienation that there are people who have been alienated from God and from God's people. Before we get into that, we're going to do a little bit of context of the city of Ephesus because we haven't done that a whole lot, but I think this passage really calls for it. Up here, we have Ephesus. Down here is Israel where Jesus walked around and was doing his earthly ministry. The kingdom of Israel was here. But if we follow the coast up and around, we get to Ephesus. If you know stuff about cities in the olden time, especially coastal cities, you would know a few things about this city already, just seeing it on the map. This is on the coast, which means there were harbours in the city, which meant that traders would come with their goods. They would sell goods. They would buy goods. So already there's a few different people coming in and out of Ephesus for commerce, for, for trade. Now, the other cool thing interesting about Ephesus is that there's a road that goes past Ephesus into the heart of Asia Minor. It actually goes all the way down into Syria as well. And this major, major road, Ephesus is at the start of it. So Ephesus isn't just a trading place, but it's also like a stopover town for people who are making their way inland. And I like what one commentator said. He said, Ephesus was strategically placed to become the commercial centre of all of Asia Minor. That's how important this place was. People from all over the place, of all different backgrounds, of all different religions, all different faiths, have been centred here at Ephesus. I think that's really interesting, but it also gives us an indication of the people who are the believers in the church, the people that he's writing to, that Paul is writing to in the book of Ephesians that we're working our way through. Most of these believers were not Jews. That would be a fair bit of travel. Some of them, I'm sure, were. But the majority of them were from other faiths or born from other places. They've converted to Christianity, become believers from other faiths. And that's important because throughout history, there has been a division between Jewish people and Gentiles. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Before verse 11 comes, we've got 10 verses of chapter 2. Jody was sharing with us last week. Um, I just want to quickly recap that because that's such an important story that today's passage brings up. The next stage of that story. So there's three stages where Paul says, we were in this place before we knew Christ. We were in this place of death. Pretty intense. We were in a place of death due to our transgressions, our sins, our disobedience to God had led us to a place of destruction and despair. But fortunately, whilst we were in this place, that's not the end of the story. 
We were in this place and we couldn't do anything to get out of this place. No matter how hard we tried, no matter how good we were, no matter how hard we tried to work out, how do I save myself? We could never do it. And then Paul writes, that's where Christ comes into the, into the picture. That whilst we were down there, whilst we were sinful and full of transgressions and disobedience, whilst we were sinners, Christ died for us which is an amazing truth. It's what my, my faith's built off. Hopefully it's also what yours is built off. That whilst we were sinners, Christ came and made us alive. He delighted in us despite where we were, despite who we, who we were. Now, Paul, after that, he's very clear. It's all Christ, not us. We didn't do anything. It was all Christ. So who can boast? No one. We can only boast in Christ. I love that picture of that awesome transformation that has come about in every life of every believer. Let's cling to that. Let's live off that. But Paul today, he springs off that. So he said, verses 1 to 10, this is the story of life-giving transformation that Jesus brings about. And then these 10 verses that come, 11 to 22, are about everyone. Who's this applicable? Everyone. What I've said here is accessible and valid for everyone. Those who have been alienated by people, those who've been separated from God and God's people are now welcome. Paul introduces this portion to the Gentiles and he gives this distinction of circumcision, that the Gentiles are uncircumcised and the Jewish people are circumcised. I'm not going to get into the hows and the, and the whats, but the why is important. Circumcision was basically a symbol that represented Israel's half of a promised covenant relationship with God. God made a promise with them and said, circumcise as representation of that relationship. Gentiles were outside of the nation, which meant that they didn't have that promise, which means they didn't circumcise. So you see this difference going on, and you can see Paul starts to get how important this is within the context of the cross. He's like, this is done in the body by human hands, already indicating that this isn't the most important distinction out there. Some barriers we build up are pretty strange. I find this very interesting. At the start of verse 11, he said, remember once already. But then here at verse 12, he says, remember again. And he has some things that he wants the Gentiles to remember. And these things are pretty interesting. These are the five things he wants them to remember. Number one, remember at that time, which is before Christ, was talking before you knew Jesus, you were separate from Christ, one, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, and without God. In other words, they were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. It's a pretty dire situation, yeah? That doesn't seem like a good place to be in. We're not going to go through each of these, but hopefully you can see some themes coming to light. Those first three are very similar to one another. They all have to do with this concept of alienation, exclusion, separation, and foreigners. Those are concepts of alienation, separation from God's people, from God himself, and from the hope of the coming Christ. So we see those first three grouped together, alienation. And the last two, Paul is like, in case you guys didn't get it, when you're separated from God, when you're not his people, that is not a good situation to be in. You are hopeless and you are godless. You are without a future. Is that a good situation to be in? Don't think so. Not in my books. Fortunately, that's not the end of the story, but my question is, if Paul's writing this letter to the church of Ephesus, to people who were not Jewish and they were the Gentile believers, why doesn't he want to encourage them? Why does he remember when you were in this place of despair? What's the point of that? 
if I was writing it, I'd go, in Christ you are alive, full stop, the end, exclamation mark, right? You want to focus on who you are, but Paul is very clear. He wants us to remember, he wants the Gentiles to remember back. And I just want to quickly stop at that and ask the question, why is he calling them to remember? I think there's two really important reasons. The first is when we remember back to where we were, and here for the Gentiles, when they remember back to where they were without Christ, they realize the significance of where they are. And the second is it builds faith and expectation, which we'll get to in a moment. Now, the first one, as I was thinking about this, a lot of illustrations came to mind, and you may resonate with all of these, none of these, or one of these. The first one that came to mind was a glow stick. A glow stick glows wherever it is, if you've cracked it, assuming you've... But if you're holding a glow stick out in the sunlight or under a lamp, can you see it glow? Well, you, you might be able to a little bit, but you won't be able to see the glow fully. You won't understand how bright it's glowing until you like, put it in your hands and you like, cup it until you try to make your hands dark, or you take it into a dark room. You put it into the right context and you can see how bright it's glowing. All of you out there wearing glasses, I have no idea how many percentage, but it looks like a fair few of us. Those of us who are wearing glasses, have you noticed how significantly awesome glasses are lately? They are epic. I had migraines going throughout at high school, but for the last six years or so, I've had no headaches, well, almost no headaches, because I've been wearing glasses, and you forget how awesome they are until you take them off and everyone's blurry, <laughs> and you try to read and you can't read, and then you're just in a mess. You don't realize the significance of something until it's taken away. The last one I want to quickly put in there is how entitled do we get in our world? I was sitting in my office the other day, and at the moment, I've got three people in our house, mum and dad, and, and I was reading this newsletter from an organization that supports vulnerable people in developing worlds. Long story short, narrator telling a story about a young girl whose family of 12 lives in a house as big as the office I was sitting in. I look up, I see, okay, there's my drum kit, there's the piano, there's the guitar one, guitar two, computer one, computer two, desk, whiteboard, couch in the corner. The penny just dropped. That I walk in and out and don't even notice how incredibly privileged and lucky and fortunate I am to have these things until I get what someone else doesn't have and compare it to what I do. And Paul, to the Gentiles here, he's saying, get what you were, bring it to mind, remember it, and then compare that to where you are. Because if you don't remember where you were, you just take where you are. This leads to a place of complacency. This leads to a place where you forget how awesome God is. You forget the significance of what Christ has done. So he's calling the Gentiles, remember where you were to realize the significance of what Christ has done. I think the question for us is then where were we? Those are five things about the Gentile believers. Where were we before Christ? What's our pre that we're comparing to our post? What's our without God that we're comparing to our with God? And I want you to think about that in your minds right now. Where were you personally? Not collectively Christians, you know, we were without God. No, no, no. Get specific about you and your circumstance. What were you trapped by? What were we devastated by? What were we stuck in? What were we chained in? Questions of, of worth that led to doubts? What's my purpose? Maybe chained with afflictions of, of addiction, of unforgiveness, of envy, greed, what was it for you? Because only when we remember those things will we really grasp the greatness of what Christ has done. 
So Paul says, remember those things and now compare it. In a moment, we'll compare it to what we've got. The last thing I just want to quickly say on on this concept of remembering is when we remember the significance of what Christ has done, it raises faith and expectation. That when we go, yeah, okay, God moved in powerful ways, then we bring that into the circumstance we're now in, into the circumstance we're praying into transformation for, and we go, this God has brought about transformation. He is faithful. He is powerful. He doesn't just tweak and shift things. He transforms things, and that is the God who I'm praying to now. For me, that raises faith. Now, Paul doesn't obviously stop there because that's, that's past tense and that's, you know, remember who you were so that we can compare it forward. So, who are we comparing it to? Well, he goes down and he makes five points that we're going to pull out at least of how we've moved from one place to another. The first is from verse 13 and it starts with the but now. Who you were but now in Christ Jesus. You who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We were far, but now we are near. I'm not going to break down all of these. One of these in particular I will, but this first one I think highlights this concept of relationship. We were without relationship, and then Jesus, through the cross, brings us into relationship with Christ, yeah? But do not forget the posturing or the perspective of this verse, that it is full of grace, that we are in Christ Jesus, that we were brought near. We didn't run close to God. We didn't jump in an Uber or a taxi and get driven to God. It was Jesus and only Jesus who brings us to God. We were far, now we're near. And the next one that he gets at is this place of hostility to peace. And I think this is a really, really important one. He's addressing this to people who were alienated. And this alienation wasn't just a difference of opinion. There was actually a hostility between the groups of people, between the Jewish person and the Gentile person. Now, if you don't know the hostility that existed between them contextually, I think there's a few ways that you can find out. Go read some books. Also, the big difference, they hate each other. I remember reading some things. I can't remember where it was, but someone said that all the Jewish people were told if a Gentile mother was giving birth, you do not go and help them in their pain because all you'll be doing is bringing another Gentile into the world. Please, that's awful. And if you go into the temple, which is the Jewish place of worship, on the wall is scrolled in, in multiple languages of Greek and Latin. It's addressed to the Gentiles. Don't go any further or else you'll be killed. This isn't disagreement. These are borders that have built up in barriers over generations, over generations, over generations. And this is what is known. This has become the norm. For us, this seems really foreign, and I'm glad. But for them, this is normal. Which is why Paul is adamant that we have to remember what Christ has done. He has shattered borders. That these distinctions between Jew and Gentile, between a God's people and other, that no longer exists in Christ. And there's two hostilities that he gets at. The first one, he himself is our peace, and he destroyed that barrier, that dividing wall of hostility. That's the first one, and that's talking about our relationships outwards. This passage, it gets at two different hostilities or two different relationships, both the vertical and the horizontal. And the horizontal is our relationships outward with each other, and the vertical is our relationship with God. I want you to picture it for a minute. The Jewish people are over here. The Gentile people are over here. They are separate from one another. But what does Christ do? He destroys that dividing wall. So people are brought together. In the middle, we have the cross. So we have Jew, Gentile, brought together and made one at the cross. And then it says, if you've got your Bibles, it's a really awesome verse, verse 16. He was bringing them together to then, in one body, reconcile both of them to God through the cross. These people who were divided from one another, the cross makes them one, destroys that, destroys that barrier. 
But then we also have this vertical that has been shattered, this relationship that's been shattered by sin and brokenness. And God restores not only our relationships with each other, but our relationships with God. And last thing I want to quickly put there is he uses the word reconciliation, an important word with big implications. He didn't establish or start a relationship with us. He reconciled a relationship with us. It was there. God made it. It was always his intention. And look into eternity and we see the awesomeness of him dwelling and walking and being with his people. It's something that was there, but something that was lost due to sin. And when Christ brought forgiveness, he brought back that relationship. So we were brought far from far too near. Hostility, Jesus has rendered into peace. The next one is that we've been separated by brokenness, but now through Christ we have access which is an awesome truth. And I love the verse, verse 18. It's got a beautiful little uh, commentary, I guess, on, on the Trinity. For through him being Christ, we both, as in all people, Gentile and Jew, we all have access to the Father by one spirit. That's a beautiful interplay of how God is working together to bring about reconciliation, that both the Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son are all working to establish connection, to reestablish connection. And we've been brought from a place of foreigners to a place of access, closeness, nearness. There's a few more, and we'll just blitz through these. You've been brought from foreigners to citizens. We weren't part of God's people. Now we are part of God's people. Last one is we have been brought from division to unity. And I think this is a really important one, and Paul kind of hinges the back end of his little passage on this, that we were divided, but now we are unified. Now, it's very similar to hostility to peace, but hostility to peace doesn't have like a consequence going forward. It just means you don't hate each other. Whereas division to unity, there's an intentionality about joining together. If you're unified, you are one. This is what Jesus has done through his sacrifice. He has created one new humanity. Depending on what version you've got of the Bible, it may say man, it may say person. This one, NIV, says humanity because that encompasses what, what Paul is saying. He's saying through Christ, there, there were people, there were groups, but in Christ, no matter who you were, no matter if you're Gentile, Jew, male, female, no matter what religion you came from, place you, uh, you originated or where your family, you know, their lines go back, no matter where you're from, you are made one in Christ. And he has this beautiful image that he uses for the church, which is us, have been made one. And that image is that of a temple. And it's such an important image, and it's all the way throughout Scripture, and you can go back and you can read it. The temple is from the Old Testament, and right in the start, it was God told his people to create a dwelling place for God. And he made this promise to be with his people, and this temple, within the inner sanctuary of this temple, God would come and he would dwell. The spiritually astute of us and of the Israelites would hopefully realize that the infinite creator God couldn't be confined to four walls. Okay, nothing could contain him to that, but God in his grace said, I'm going to be with my people, and then he manifested himself in there, so they could come to the temple and be in God's presence, which I think is an amazing gift. But Paul says those people were geographically similar, right? They lived in the same place. They were a people group, so a physical temple was fine because they could all come and they could come to the temple. But the problem is that now God has created a new people, which includes us, which includes absolutely everyone who comes to faith in Christ. So there's a problem now. There's a problem with the temple being a physical one because we can't come to the temple, all of us, right? We wouldn't fit or we'd be making temples all over the place. And Paul says the temple is no longer representing a physical place. Instead, the temple is now the people. 
And he has this wonderful image that we are being built together, stone by stone, on top of each other, that you and I, we are being made one in purpose and one in Christ as a temple, as a dwelling place for the Spirit. He really brings it home at the end, Paul, that we have God inside of us. And I love where he lands out of this image of a temple, and that is with Christ. What part does Christ have in this temple? Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. If you don't know what a cornerstone is, I thought it was like the, the middle stone of an arch, and it was like the middle one that held it all together, so if you take it out, the arch would fall down, which it is. But also, in the making of buildings, the cornerstone was the one that's kind of set first. It was the one that's in place first, and it dictates where the building then goes. It's the first stone set, and everything is done in reference to that stone. And in case you haven't made the link yet, this is telling us who Christ is in the church, in our lives. He is the cornerstone. So where he points is where we go. Our lives are then lived in reference to him, the one who came first. And I love, absolutely love that image. But my question for you is, is he your cornerstone? Do we come back to Christ every day, every second? Do we come back to the, to the one off whom we are built or on whom we are built? Because it's so easy to fall back into that place that happened before Christ where we build borders around one another, we create that us and them mentality. That's comfortable. We can easily fall back into them mentality, but that's not what Christ has shown us or calls us to. He calls us to a life in him. And there were beautiful lyrics about building our life in Christ and Christ alone. I will build my life on him. He is a firm foundation. Last thing I want to leave us with is just this. And I think this just brings it home for me. In case you didn't notice that Christ is at the center of it, he's the one and the reason for everything, everything of salvation. I hope this will prove it to you. This is just a breaking down of the passage. It's only 10 verses, but Jesus is referenced very much. But now in Christ... You who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace. He has destroyed the barrier. His purpose was to create in himself. You know, God has brought us about through the cross by which he put to death hostility. He came and preached peace. Through him, we both have access to the Father by the Spirit. With Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone, in him the building is joined together. And in him, you two are being built together. Does, does it not, do you get that? The Christ is at the center, yeah? It's in him and him alone. And now the challenge we have is, what does it mean to have Christ as the cornerstone? Because as, as an individual application, that we are all temples of God, that he dwells within us individually. And then there's also a communal one, that he dwells in us, the people. And the church have gotten this so wrong throughout history so many times. They've also gotten it right, but they've gotten it so wrong sometimes. What do people see when they look at you? Because if they see you, if they see brokenness, if they see torn and destroyed relationships, they're seeing the wrong thing. When the world looks at us as a community, when they come in, they should experience Christ. When they look at us, what do they see? When they look at you, what do they see? So let's remember where we came from and where we were pre-Christ. Let's remember the significance of what Christ has done. Because then the faith and expectation will rise that God can move mountains and he will. He's done it and he will do it again. And then we just have that question. Is Christ the cornerstone of your life? Does everything you do reflect him, point toward him?